Welcome to the Book Collector podcast. The Book Collector for Autumn 2018 was devoted to polar exploration and was edited by Fergus Fleming, renowned travel writer. We've made podcasts of two of the articles in that issue, and this is one of them. Oats on Oats is read here by its author, Brian Oates, whose grandfather's brother was the Captain Oates. Oats on Oats by Brian Oates I was born into a family proud of its history. Landed gentry, they kept diaries back to the 17th century, neatly filed away in wooden boxes. These records wouldn't have been much interest to either collector or academic until my grandfather's brother uttered his famous last words, I'm just going outside and I may be some time. Captain Lawrence Edward Grace Oates, knowing that his frostbite was slowing everyone down, decided to walk out of the tent he shared with Scott Wilson Bowers on about the 14th or 15th of March 1912. His body was never found. It wouldn't have made me much of a collector either had it not been for my father who ran into financial difficulties towards the end of his life and started selling off Oates memorabilia, letters and pictures. He had no expert knowledge at a time when the market for polar memorabilia was far from reaching its peak. When Bonham's Knightsbridge held their polar sale, Scott and Admonson Centenary, on the 30th of March 2012, an autographed letter by Wilson's widow, Oriana, to F.J. Hooper, thanking him for finding the tent with the three bodies in it, sold for £6,875, including premium. But the top lot was the highly important first farewell letter signed R. Scott, to Sir Edgar Speyer, which went for £163,000, which went for £163,250,000. Written on the 16th of March 1912, shortly after Captain Oates had disappeared, and three days before the tent was pitched for the final time, it contained the words, If this diary is found... It will show how we stuck by dying companions and fought this thing out well to the end. It was in one of the three notebooks found in the tent on the 12th of November 1912 by a search party led by Lieutenant Atkinson. I don't know how much my father received for more than 500 letters that Captain Oates wrote to his mother, but I am sure it was a lot less in the 1970s than what they would have reached in 2012. 
By then, they had luckily found their rightful place and had been sold on to the Scott Polar Research Institute by a dealer. I realised too late that they had gone, but that moment of realisation determined me to save whatever I could of the Oates books, papers and pictures. I kept a close eye on my father after that and managed to buy items off him just before he, they were going to the restorer, which I soon learnt meant he was selling them. I managed to save many boxes of paper and notebooks from being sold or thrown onto the fire, which he regularly had at the bottom of his garden. I even found a portrait down there one day. I challenged him, but he just said, Nasty-looking woman, never liked that picture. I paid my father £50 for one of the captain's watches. It was crested and initialed, and had accompanied him to the pole. And I took out from my father's car and paid him £50 each for three portraits, including one of Oates, that were destined for restoration. It was only when I retired about ten years ago that I became really interested in my family's history. For 45 years before that, my work as a film editor took me away for long periods all over the world, and I never really had time to discover more about my grandfather's famous brother. I only really knew what most people knew about the captain. Neither his brother Brian nor his sisters ever talked to me about him. His death, which affected their mother deeply, had such an impact on their lives that I assume it was painful to talk about the brother who had been a father figure, then a hero to them, and ultimately someone they all failed to live up to, certainly as far as their mother was concerned. It was by coincidence that shortly after my retirement, Rosemary Irwin, the chairman of the Oates Museum at Gilbert White's house in Selborne, asked if she could come and talk to me. This sparked what has become an intense interest in Captain Oates with particular reference to the effect of his death on the family thereafter. My father had inherited his Aunt Violet's house and she was the family archivist. When we moved in, it was packed with great wooden chests going back to the 1600s, full of Oates family history. Violet sent some papers to appropriate museums in Cambridge, Leeds, Selborne and elsewhere. The material relating to Captain Oates was pretty much complete, but I believe his sleeping bag, now in the Scott Polar Institute, was given to them by my grandfather, Brian. Although I'm interested in the captain, my real interest lay in his younger brother, Brian, after whom I am named and whom I very much admired. Both boys went to Eton and their relationship in adulthood became that of senior boy to fag. They were undoubtedly fond of each other, but the captain used my grandfather as his cat's paw whilst he was roaming the world, fighting wars, quelling rebellions, and eventually walking to the South Pole. Throughout this period, 
he used his mother to give orders to Brian about making arrangements for rifles to be sent, horses to be looked after, and farms to manage. On the death of an uncle, the two boys both inherited an estate in Yorkshire. The captain expected Brian to handle everything for him, and he did. I was astonished to find out fairly recently that my grandfather, forever rubbished by his mother, actually finished his studies at Eton to go on to Trinity College, Cambridge, both things his brother had failed to achieve. The master of Trinity College, Oxford, famously told the captain, please do not apply to this college again, your marks are considerably lower than required. The SBRI is very proud of the letters from the captain to his mother, which he wrote to her regularly from the age of 18, when he was recuperating in Barbados, until his last letter from the Pole. I remember seeing them stored in boxes in our house as a young man, but my father sold them before I knew about it. The final letter to his mother written on the day he left with Scott for the final march to the South Pole, also included a letter addressed to his brother. Dated the 3rd of January 1912, on a leaf from the notebook he used for pony notes, it read, Dear Brian, we shall get to the Pole all right. I suppose by the time I get back, you will be a fat man with half a dozen children. If that filly of mine looks like racing, will you think about sending her to Halleck? I don't care a hang for any other race, but I should like to have a dart at the Gold Cup at Sandown Military. Blooming cold here. Best. Chin chin. Remember me to Sissy. L-E-G-O. Latitude 87, colon 32. Not having been brought up with the stories surrounding the captain, I was intrigued to learn more about him, and my interest in the captain and the Oates family has taken me on many journeys and adventures. But unlike the captains, mine are mainly in the head. I don't want to go to the Pole. I felt I got to know Laurie, as his family called him, by spending over six months at the Scott Polar Institute transcribing his letters to his mother. He was an extraordinary letter writer. Quite a lot of misspelling, but no doubt about the content. He was very articulate. I felt you could see him stand there and talk. He was born in the 19th century, when England was confident and ambitious, and there was no stopping them but he also thought like an 18th century squire and had no reason not to. His ancestry dated to the Norman Conquest. He knew where he stood in society and this may well have been part of the reason why he and Scott didn't always see eye to eye. They were not on a level. The longest time I spent researching was in Cambridge at the Scott Polar Research Institute where everyone was most helpful, and I established a good working relationship with the archivist 
Naomi Bonham. While sorting through my personal oats archive for the hundredth time, I found a little notebook which looked just like all the other notebooks, and I thought I had looked at it before. But on opening it, I couldn't quite believe my eyes. It was Violet's copy of Captain Oates's diary. She had been told to burn the diary on her mother's death. It was known that she had done so, but only after transcribing part of it. These diary transcripts were published early on, and had consisted of several manuscript foolscap pages, believed to be the original copies by Violet. But this burgundy-coloured notebook contained all Violet's foolscap notes and more, amounting to 45 pages filled with 6,000 words. It became clear that a substantial part had not been released, and many entries were quite unknown. These include some typically Oatesian comments on his leader's calorie prowess and how he and Bowers agree that they are already in great trouble with the ponies only after a hundred miles. A direct criticism of Scott not putting more forage for the ponies on the Terra Nova. Oates was cocky enough to confront Scott while the rest of the crew wouldn't dare. But it is clear that he was very confident and argued a lot with Scott. This new discovery of L.E.G. Oates's diary, 1911-1912, is held at the Scott Polar Research Institute. The captain wrote home from the Antarctic almost daily at the start, and at first he was careful to keep his concerns from his mother. However, as time went by, he shared with her his deep misgivings about his leader. On the 22nd of October 1911, he wrote to his mother on Terra Nova-headed paper, I am going to try and keep a diary on this journey, but don't know if I shall be able to keep it up. If anything should happen to me, which I don't think likely, ask for my notebook. My transcriptions of his diary paint a vivid picture of him and the failing expedition. 4th of November 1911. Our transport is really wretched and must have cost us an enormous amount. The motors cost £100 each and two of them have done nothing. 7th of November. Mayers, with his dog team, came up last night and went down to his tent and had a short chat with him. We both damned the motors. Three motors at £100 each, 19 ponies at £5 each, dogs at 30 bob each. If Scott fails to get to the pole, he jolly well deserves his failure. 29th of November. I think we shall get to the pole, but there is a very good chance of the Norskis getting there before us. Scott made a mistake, I think, in not pushing on last night as far as the ponies would go, but he has his own way of running things. December the 4th. Passed over a large number of undulations. The sight of the land was very fine, now only 15 miles away saw several enormous glaciers coming down between the monuments, also some chasms which stopped 
Shackleton. And now one is here, one can realise what a wonderful journey his was and the daring which prompted him to strike up this glacier instead of following the coastline. A parhelion is visible. 19th of December. My feet are giving me a bit of trouble. They've been continually wet since leaving Hut Point. 6th of January, 1912. Past Shackleton's South Camp. The Sastrugai are very large. The whole surface like a rough sea. Funny Shackleton does not mention it. 16th of January. We are not a very happy party tonight. 13 miles from the pole. We have picked up the Norskis track, pointing straight there. Scott is taking his defeat much better than I expected. Temperature minus 23, distance 13 miles. 13 miles to go to the pole. But this business of Admanson is a bit of a damper. 18th of January, 1912. Saw Admanson's camping ground one mile away, marched in direction of Pole, and found tent of Admanson's pitched with some gear, instruments, etc. He had reached the Pole a mile off. I must say, the man must have his head screwed on the right way. The gear they left was in excellent order, and they seemed to have had a comfortable trip with their dog team. Very different to our wretched man-hauling. 20th of January. Very heavy surface. My nose was rather badly nipped and is now recovering a little, but is not a very nice-looking object. 27th of January. Marched 13 miles and are now clear of the Sastruge. I gave them a bit of a blowout tonight as I finish my week's cooking, for which I am truly thankful. It is a wretched job with these temperatures. This was the first... Nice, bright day since we left the pole. Marching was almost a pleasure. 12th of Feb. We were in rather a nasty hole tonight. Got among bad crevices and pressures, all blue ice. We struggled in this chaos until about 9pm and camped on blue ice between the crevices. One meal left on half rations today. 16th of Feb. Still eight or nine miles from the depot and one day's half rations, weather as thick as a pea soup, camp at 8.15 owing to poor Evans having a partial collapse. If he does not get better tomorrow, God knows how we're going to get him home. We are very nearly in a nasty hole. 17th and 18th. Distance nine miles, a most dreadful night and day. Unable to leave camp until 10 a.m., owing to thick weather. 17th and 18th of February. We brought Evans into the tent, where he died at 12.30am. We marched as soon as we'd had a meal and reached the depot at 6am. Temp now, minus five, midnight. 24th. Heavy surface again today. Distance 8.2 miles. Picked up depot and dug up Christopher's head for food, but it was rotten. Temperature tonight, minus 17. 25th, slightly better surface. Distance, 11.2 miles. 
temperature minus 20. 26th, distance 11.5 miles, temperature minus 21.5. 27th, minimum last night minus 37, temperature tonight minus 32, distance 12.2. And that was his last phlegmatic entry, showing the inevitable decline. His mother, who wore black from the day she was told her son had died until her own death in 1936, was a hard nut. Neither my father nor any of my relatives spoke much about my family, but one day my father told a guest, that when as a little boy he stayed with his grandmother, she lived without central heating and no hot water, which she defended by saying that Captain Oates didn't have these at the South Pole. My father would then be handed a single candle at the bottom of the staircase. That and cold water were his sole comforts. As a boy, I can remember a black metal box with the initials L-E-G-O, painted in white on the lid. It now sits beneath the desk in my study. My father told me that the box contained interviews made by Mrs Caroline Oates after the death of her son in the Antarctic. They consisted of conversations with members of the expedition and included a startling interview with Scott's widow, Kathleen. It has been family law that Mrs Oates was quietly persuaded by the highest authority to stop her interviews, possibly to avoid admitting failure with World War I looming. I don't know that for sure, but I do know that the surviving members of the Terra Nova expedition returned eventually to England in June 1913, and Mrs Oates was determined to meet as many of them as she could. In 1914, after she carried out her interviews, she never looked at them again, literally put the lid on the box until I found it 70 years later. Of course, my father sold these originals as well, but not before I had made transcripts of them, and they inspired me to write a play about her own inquest into the unsuccessful race to the South Pole. A few things stand out from my notes. My grandmother's first interview was with Commander Teddy Evans, the naval officer in charge of the Terra Nova. On his return in 1913, he brought with him her son's diary and a few personal possessions. One sealed package was marked the Watch of Lawrence Oates, a silver watch, the one I managed to buy off my father, which he always had about him and which his mother had bought for him at the Army and Navy stores just along the road from her flat in Victoria. In the same package, there was an envelope containing the sum of two pounds, six shillings and eightpence. The diary held two letters from Dr. Wilson, one to Mrs. Oates and one to his wife. The one to Mrs. Oates. Dear Mrs. Oates, this is a sad end to our undertaking. Your son died a very noble death, God knows. I have never seen or heard of such courage as he showed from first to last 
with his feet both badly frostbitten. Never a word or sign of complaint or of the pain. He was a great example. Dear Mrs Oates, he asked me at the end to see you and to give you the diary of his. You, he told me, are the only woman he ever loved. Now I am in the same case, and I can no longer hope to see either you or my beloved wife or my mother and father. The end is close upon us, but these diaries will be found, and this note will reach you some day. Please be so good as to send pages 54 and 55 of this diary to my beloved wife, addressed to Mrs. Ted Wilson, Westall, Cheltenham. And this is the letter he wrote to his wife. To my beloved wife, life has been a struggle for some weeks now on this return journey from the Pole. Today may be the last effort. Birdie and I are going to try and reach the depot 11 miles north of us and return to this tent where Captain Scott is incapacitated by a frozen foot. We have been short of oil and short of food for so long and such low temperatures and bad weather that we are all done up. Evans and Oates are dead. Our effort today is rather a forlorn hope, but I hope this will reach you. I look forward to meeting you after this life is over. I shall simply fall and go to sleep in the snow, and I have your little books with me in my breast pocket. God will bring us together. Don't be unhappy, darling. All is for the best. We are playing a good part in a great scheme arranged by God himself, and all is well. I find absolutely no terror in the thought that this is the last day of my life. Yet it almost certainly is, I think, dear. God be with you. God keep you in this disappointment. We have done what we thought best. Goodbye for the present. Evans said that Oates was in two minds about the whole business. Indeed, one night Laurie told me he was going to write out a cheque to pay for all the expenses of the expedition had been put to on his account, and the next day that he would present his cheque to Captain Scott, saying that he wished to go back to England on the ship. However, Dr Wilson and Mr Mears and I had, after considerable effort, persuaded him to go on and not to give things up. Evans also told how they felt when they heard that everyone had perished on the return journey. I ordered the ship decked out to welcome back Scott and his men. Blue tablecloths were hung and everything they could think of to make it all look gay. The men went all on position in proper naval style. The cabins had all been cleaned and fresh covers on the banks. But when the news came in, all any of us could do was walk about and look silently at each other. The only sound to be heard 
was the crunching of their boots in the snow. Oriana Wilson said that her husband at the beginning wrote as if he never held any expectation of ever returning. She added a few excerpts from his diary to show how the party was suffering. 1911, November the 27th. Scott, frostbitten. 1912, January the 17th. Oats, pretty severely frostbitten. Nose and cheeks. 1912, January the 20th. Titus, nose and cheeks blistered by cold. January the 28th. Titus, big toe, turning black. 1912, February the 4th. Titus, toes are blackening and nose and cheeks are a dead yellow. My grandmother also spoke to Cecil Mears, the expedition's dog handler, who became one of Oates's close friends. On his return to England, Mears presented Mrs Oates with a framed photograph by Ponting of Oates at the stable door with his spade. He inscribed it to his mother from his pal, Mother Mears. I had no idea this photograph existed and only found it by chance when my mother had passed away and I was clearing out the family house. It had been hanging over our agar for as long as I can think, but it had been covered with an old kitchen towel. I was about to throw it in the skip when I checked what was underneath. The photograph was there, still in its original frame. Everyone Mrs Oates interviewed said how splendid her son was, uh, perhaps unsurprisingly in the circumstances, but the overall picture is so different from other accounts which describe him as a reserved character. She was told that at Cape Town he'd organised a jackal hunt and found mounts for his friends. On the ice he would rather socialise than sit inside and write his diary and the crew said he was a man without airs and graces, who did not shirk from any of the ordinary seaman's duties. He signed on as a midshipman, and thus had the unusual distinction of serving the army and the navy at the same time. The crew joined him in his mistrust of Scott's leadership qualities, not just because of his poor organisation, but for his bad temper. According to Mears, almost everybody had trouble with the owner, Captain Scott. Evans was much liked by all ranks, high and low, and Captain Scott would swear at him all day in front of his crew, which annoyed them, but also irked us explorers. In the end, we would rather climb the Beardmore Glacier than listen to the owner tearing a strip off one of the most able and popular men on the expedition. It is odd but true to think that all of us shunned the owner, Captain Scott, for this reason. I do remember that Dr Wilson, whom we all came to call Peacemaking Bill, used to intervene in these rows, but even he occasionally could not stop Scott's oath-infused rants. We spent as much time as possible out of Scott's sight in the stables, and only attended the hut for meals, sleep, and the dreaded nightly lectures. Both Oates and I found them infernally boring. Mrs Oates also met Edward Atkinson, a Royal Navy surgeon 
whom Scott had appointed leader of the men left behind once the Polar Party had set off. It was he who discovered the tent. His team looked for Oates's body, but found only his boots and his sleeping bag draped over a snow wall, which Oates himself had built on the outward journey to protect the ponies. The boots were slit up the back, which shows how awful the captain's feet must have been. Failing to get Kathleen Scott to visit her, Mrs Oates, on doing her interviews, arranged to pay her a visit. Lady Scott was ten years younger than her husband and a society sculptor. At one point, before the five men set out for the pole, she told Scott in a letter that he should take any risk and do whatever was needed because his death was of no importance to her. She could get on without him. She would rather her son had a father who was a dead hero instead of a live failure. She must have been a complicated woman. She herself asked Scott not to misinterpret her. I feel she meant well, but sadly it only came out wrong in the way she wrote. The two were obviously deeply attached. Her letter saying, die if you have to, was found on Scott's body. I believe she was urging him on to finer things. I wonder, though, if Scott interpreted it as such. However, around the time he received this note, he declared that he had lost his confidence. In a letter to Caroline Oates, she described Captain Oates as a ragamuffin. At Sydney Racecourse, where they were raising funds for the expedition, she said that he stood out from the other racegoers who were all dressed appropriately. Your son, however, seemed to have deliberately dressed down and was garbed in a Norfolk jacket of great ancestry. Such boots and marvellous trousers and an indescribable hat. He was quite unaware, I believe, that he wasn't, as all else were, wearing a top hat and morning jacket. He was with an equally scarecrow-like man who I have found out to be Dr Atkinson, the expedition medical man. I did not then see the funny side. In time, I learnt to appreciate your son and, to atone for my poor view of him, I have lately agreed to sculpt a memorial plaque to be placed in Eton College as an inspiration to selflessness in the boys. During my research into the captain, I learnt a lot about this determined man, who suffered from delicate health as a child, but clearly had a survival instinct. Before going to Antarctica, he had served in Egypt, India and South Africa, where he was recommended for the Victoria Cross and was wounded so badly that one leg was an inch shorter than the other. His uncle Frank Oates was an African explorer who wrote, I like anything that is difficult of attainment. So he too must have had adventure in his blood. I realised he was not just a keen horseman, but also a hardy soldier who was prepared to take any risk. He was known indeed during the Boer War by his regiment as No Surrender Oats. Nor did he, 
He went to face his fate, not run away from it. His final words show what an ideal choice he must have been for this last daring expedition. We hope you enjoyed that article, Oats on Oats, by Brian Oates, from our Polar Special Edition in Autumn 2018. You can access this article and any others that you might like from our archive at www.thebookcollector.co.uk.